community for people who've given up on church but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our locations in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Thanks! Votes we just watched that about 10 more times to go home, right? <laughs> yeah, is that great? <laughs> we are continuing our Advent series today called Longings. What do you really want for Christmas? And today, I want to talk with you about joy. And I'll tell you what, you know, if you ever someone needed proof, if ever someone doubted that what human beings were created for was joy, all they need to do is watch that, right? Then that just, it just points to something that's deep and true in, in the very core of us. Uh, it's almost like we have this kind of little joy bucket inside of us that, that is, when it gets filled, it can't help but overflow into the whole of our being and just spilling over into the rest of our life and the lives around us. We were created for joy. You were created for joy. Joy is what we were made for. Uh, you know, it's funny, the scriptures, well, you know, uh, the scriptures talk about something they call the joy of the Lord. And I don't know about you, but when I hear that phrase, and again, I didn't grow up in church, but I've been in church a while. I'm like one of those professional Christians because I'm on the payroll, you know, that kind of Christian. So I've been in church for a long time. And that phrase just has one of those kind of churchy feels to it, doesn't it? Right. You can almost picture the church lady saying the joy of the Lord, right? Like, but the joy of the Lord points to something very deep and profound that's true about God. We see this in the scriptures over and over again when it's mentioned. But it, I, I want you to think about it this way. The joy of the Lord points to something that's true about God, that God is the most joyful being in the entire cosmos. He is. Joy is part of his very nature. And part of what Jesus came to do at Christmas, part of why Jesus came was to bring joy. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. That's what we celebrate. Now, I know it's possible when you hear Christians, or especially a pastor, talk about joy like this, it, that it can feel like, oh, no, here comes another one of those happy, pappy, clappy sermons about how I'm just supposed to feel blissfully peaceful and smiley all day long. My, my life's just supposed to work out, and I'm supposed to, right? L let me tell you, that, that's not true, and that's not true of us here, is it? Well, we know that life has some hardships. In fact, we talked about this two weeks ago. That life doesn't always go the way we want it to. It doesn't always turn out as we had hoped for. But what Christians believe, what the scriptures teach, and what Advent points to is a deeper truth. Not simply that joy exists, but that joy, the joy of the Lord, is possible for you and me. That joy is something we can actually taste. Joy is something we can actually experience in our lives. The joy is what Jesus came to bring. And I want to start there this morning. On the night before Jesus was going to die, he was trying to explain to some of his followers, his disciples, uh, that they were going to experience some great loss, some great pain. But he said, I don't want you to worry. I, I don't want you to give up. I don't want you to quit. Because eventually you're going to know a greater joy. It's a beautiful scene. It's a very tender, kind of personal 
scene that we see in John's gospel, one of Jesus' closest friends. And, and what's funny about the way John describes this scene is that uh, the disciples are almost, they're almost comically dense. They're, they, they're so dense, they don't get this at all. Uh, let me show you. This is from John chapter 16. Let me read it to you. Jesus said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father? They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Do you see how dense these guys are? Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he says to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And the disciples are like, uh, yes, Jesus, that's what we're wondering. So he continues, very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. All right, women. Is that how it works? I mean, when you give, baby, give birth to a baby, you just forget all the pain. It's like amnesia. Just, is, that, is that really how it works? As a man, I've, I've learned one very important lesson in life, and that is that I never pretend, I never, ever, ever pretend to understand the pain of childbirth, right? Like that, guys, that's just rule number one, right? I mean, we know. But since Jesus does it here, let me just jump in and see, see if I can explain a little bit. Just, 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 you know, what would Jesus do? Here we go. I was thinking, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of funny. I, I remember when we had our first child and, uh, I was so nervous. You know, so, so did y'all do this? We, we enrolled in one of those classes where you go. And I learned in this class that I had a very important role to play. I was Mary Robbins' coach. And I was supposed to hold her hand in the process, you know, through labor. And, and I was there to help her remember how to breathe in case she forgot how to breathe, right? That, I mean, it's a very important role. It's a very important role. And, and y'all, labor is no joke. I mean, it just goes on and on. And it hurts. It hurts, right? And so I'm standing there, and the labor just keeps going and going and going. I mean, at one point, I got so tired, I had to sit down. <laughs> so when our second child came, I, I knew what I was in for. I was ready. I was ready when, when the second one came. And so, uh, you know, Maram started having regular contractions. We went to the hospital, and we checked her in. And I knew, I knew this was going to be a marathon and not a sprint, right? And I felt a little rumbling in my tumbling here, Don. And so I said, you know, I need, to, I need to go get some food. So I went and got a tuna melt, right? And I came back to the room. And uh, as I walked back into the room, Mary Robin was already pushing the doctors over there, and Elijah was born 10 minutes later, right? I almost missed my second child's birth because of a tuna melt. <laughs> I still ate it later. It tasted good cold. It was great. What's Jesus' point here? <laughs> That women really can't remember the pain? That a woman, no, thank you. Let's get an amen. Amnesia, they don't forget it. No, Jesus' point is this. He's trying to tell us something about joy here. The point is that joy, the joy of giving life is going to outweigh the pain of giving birth. That what starts out as pain is going to end in joy. 
Or as the Marvel superhero Thor says in one of his movies, in this dark world there will be great pain, but there will be great joy. In the end, joy will win. So if joy has not yet won, it is not yet the end. And this is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. In a little while, you will not see me, but then you will see me again. You will rejoice, and who? No one, no one will take away your joy. And that's what happens. That's exactly what happens. Jesus is crucified. Uh, There's great pain. Uh, They can't see him, but it's not yet the end. Then Jesus rises from the dead. He confronts them, and they're filled with this overwhelming joy that they cannot contain. That's the gospel. That's the story. And y'all, I have to tell you, this joy, this joy of the Lord marked the early church like nothing else. Nothing else. Many of those who had, that eventually decided to become Christians, they, they were shunned by their friends or family. Uh, they lost business contacts. They lost jobs. Uh, some of them were beaten and thrown in prison. And how did they respond? The scriptures tell us they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Such was their joy. In fact, some of them got thrown in a dungeon. This story one time, Paul and his buddy, they're in the dungeon, and, and uh, they're in the center of the prison because everyone's afraid they're going to escape. It's the middle of the night. What are they doing? They're having a giant hymn sing, right? They're just worshiping. They're so filled with joy, they can't contain it. Many of them had nothing or lost everything, and they lived in poverty. But even in their poverty, the poverty that they found themselves in could not steal their joy. Paul writes this uh, of, in 2 Corinthians 8, 2. He says, in the midst of a very severe trial and extreme poverty, there, that's the early church, their overflowing joy welled up in rich generosity. If there is one word that marked the followers of Jesus more than any other word in the first century, it was this. It was joy. And no one could take it. No one could take it. Which sort of begs the question for us this morning. Can can we really experience that kind of joy? Is that kind of joy, the kind of joy that no one can take from us, is that kind of joy uh, available to me? Is that available to you today? Well, today I want to make the case that it is. And that that kind of joy, the joy that never leaves, the joy that can never fade, that kind of joy comes from one place and one place alone. It comes from a profound and real experience of God's grace, of God's grace. God's grace is what leads to joy that will never be taken away. A number of years ago, a Christian psychologist, this is in the middle of the 20th century, a Christian psychologist named Frank Lake and a Swiss theologian named Emil Brunner got together and they were working with missionaries who were coming home from service in India. Now, what you need to know is that this time in the world, India was just opening up to the Western missionaries, and and God was doing an amazing work uh, throughout the country in India. Uh, But many of the missionaries were coming home after only being there for a short time, uh, discouraged, burnt out, utterly joyless. And Frank and Emil got together and said, why, why is this? Like, what's happening to these Christian missionaries that they're losing their joy? And so Frank and Emil dove into the scriptures to study the life of Jesus. And they they found out something 
quite peculiar. Here's what they noticed about the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus was anything but easy, right? Jesus faced a lot of opposition, a lot of hostility, a lot of disappointment, a lot of hardship, but he never burnt out. He never grew sarcastic or cynical. He never lost his motivation. Jesus never lost his joy. And what Frank and Emil began to see was that in the scriptures, the picture that we get of Jesus is that he, he lives a kind of, in a kind of rhythm, a kind of pattern of grace in his life that produced a joy in him that no one could steal. Frank and Emil began to call this pattern the cycle of grace, the cycle of grace. And with the time that we have remaining today, about the next three hours, I want to talk about, <laughs> I'm just kidding, we won't be here that long. I want to talk to you about this cycle of grace. Because I think this concept is, is really, really important for us to understand. If, if we're really going to experience joy that won't leave, we've got to understand how grace works, how Jesus is not simply the one who came to die for us, but he also came to live to show us how we can live in grace and experience this kind of joy. So for those who are note takers, there are four movements in this cycle of grace I want to teach you today. Four movements, then we're going to pray and go to lunch. So first movement is this. The starting point of grace is always acceptance. Acceptance. Acceptance is the first movement in the cycle of grace. It is in acceptance that grace begins. Grace starts here. Jesus is born into the world. Uh, he has a mom who loves him. His parents provide for him and give him a safe environment. But before Jesus ever begins his public ministry, the first 30 years of his life, uh, Jesus has done pretty much nothing, right? He comes to age 30, and right before he begins, he goes to the river where his cousin John, John the baptizer, John is baptizing people, and Jesus goes to get baptized. And it is one of the strangest stories in the Gospels. And all four Gospels mention it. It's so profound. And here's what happens. Jesus comes up out of the water, and everyone, not just John and Jesus, everyone there hears a voice from heaven that says, This is my Son whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. I want to ask you this question. What has Jesus accomplished so far in his life? Nothing. Nothing. Okay, well, he was a carpenter. He maybe made some tables and some wine racks that he sold at Bed Bath & Beyond or whatever, right? He'd done some stuff. But he hadn't really done anything noteworthy, had he? He hadn't really accomplished. He hadn't performed any miracles. He hadn't healed anybody. He hadn't done any teaching. Jesus had done zero. And he hears the voice of his heavenly father, this is my son whom I love. And it, it utterly laid the foundation for his public ministry. It was the beginning of the grace cycle for Jesus. Now, I was trying to think about uh, how to illustrate this. And I remembered a time in my own life, some of you may have heard this story, I may have told this before, uh, when I experienced that kind of profound acceptance that changed me. Uh, I was 19 years old, I was living in California, and I just gotta tell you, my life was going nowhere fast. Uh, I won't bore you with the details, but it was a really hard year. And, and my parents had just told me that they were leaving California and moving to Texas. And so I had this last lunch with my dad at Olive Garden, of all places, uh, before they moved. And I remember sitting at that table with my dad, and we, we, we were rocky at best at this point. I remember sitting there and, and not even knowing what I needed from my dad. And at the end of the meal, he just on his own accord said, Aaron, I want to tell you something. He said, Aaron, I, I want you to know how proud I am of you. 
Not for anything you've ever done, but just for who you are. My life changed, right? I mean, the, the one thing I needed from my father in that moment, utterly, I was utterly accepted, and that grace changed me. This is exactly what happens to Jesus. This is what we learn from the Jesus pattern. Jesus' identity, his worth, was built on the gracious love and acceptance of his father. Identity and acceptance in the grace cycle always comes before achievement and work. And this, this truth is why grace alone can open the door to, for us to joy. Only God can do that. Only God can provide the kind of acceptance that we so desperately need. The Bible describes it this way. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the what? Joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Question, why did Jesus endure the cross? For joy. For joy. What's this whole world about? Joy is going to win. No hurt or pain, no guilt, no sin can take that away when it's offered as a gift of grace purchased on the cross by God. And if, you, if, you ever, if you're a Christian and you haven't quite got this one down yet, or, or if you ever decide you're going to become a Christian and commit to following Jesus, you just need to know this. Because until you get this, my friend, you will spin your wheels and go nowhere. The entire life, the entire Christian life begins when we recognize this profound acceptance of Jesus. You know, it's so funny. In the church, we often talk about praying to accept Jesus. And I think that's good. But actually, I think the deeper truth is praying to realize that he has accepted us. The first movement in the movement of grace is to recognize, ah, oh, because of Jesus, I am accepted. I am loved. That's the first movement. Second movement builds on that. First movement is acceptance. The second movement is sustenance or sustaining grace. Now, of course, grace in some ways begins with a one-time moment. We, we, we acknowledge, we come to trust, we make a decision to follow Jesus. But grace is not something that happens once and for all. Grace is something that actually sustains us. It continues to flow in our lives Jesus is not just accepted by the, his father, but Jesus lived a life with practices and habits that allowed God's grace to continue replenishing his spirit. We see this all over the gospels and in the pattern and life of Jesus. Uh, Jesus, you might not know this, he had regular times of prayer, right? Uh, sometimes it was so conspicuous, like the guys would be, hey, we're going over here, and like, wait, where did Jesus go? Oh, he's off praying. Just he was routinely piecing out to go pray. Uh, there are other times... Uh, Jesus, we see him spending time with the Father in worship. We see Jesus hanging out with close friends, his community group, the folks that knew everything about him. People often underestimate the power of close friends in the life of Jesus. Uh, Jesus participated in weekly public worship. Luke tells us he went into the synagogues as was his custom. Jesus did what you guys are doing right now on a weekly basis, and it filled him up. Jesus fed his mind on the scriptures. He enjoyed times in creation. Here's one you might not know. Jesus loved to celebrate. Jesus loved to party with irreligious people. Did you know that? 
In fact, Jesus was so good at hanging out with the people who like to celebrate, he earned a reputation for himself amongst the day. Uh, Matthew tells us that some thought he was a drunkard and a glutton. That's how much Jesus liked to party with the religious people. I'm not sure how that fits into your worldview, but that's Jesus, right? Straight out of Matthew. What's the big idea here? Simply this, Jesus engaged in regular practices of prayer, worship, friendship, celebration, and time alone with God. And these habits are what connected him to the fount of grace in his life. These habits are what replenished his grace bucket. I was thinking about how to illustrate this, because this can be kind of hard for us to get our minds around this, this idea that grace is free, but we have some role in replenishing and I was reminded of something, a habit that we have in my house uh, where we don't let our tanks get too empty. Literally, I'm talking about our gas tanks, right? Maybe you have this in your home too. Uh, but we have a habit, a practice that we live by where if the needle on the gas gauge drops below half, whose job is it to fill it up before you bring the car home? Whoever's driving, right? Okay, so maybe you do have this one. And this, this is, this is kind of challenging for one particular person in our house. Uh, and, uh, you know, there have been multiple occasions, and uh, that person's name shall remain nameless, but uh, my wife has had to live with him for 20 years now. It's just, it's, it's really hard. And, but this has worked really well for us until we had teenage drivers, right? Because here's what I've learned about my teens. They don't even know what a gas gauge is. I, I'm convinced that my teens, when they look at the F and the E, they think F means fail and E means extra credit. Like, I just... And so the closer the needle to the E on the way home, they're like, I got extra points, right? And the irony, of course, and this fits the grace, the irony is I'm not even asking my kids to pay for the gas. They, they have dad's magical grace card. All they have to do is swipe it, right? Just, I, I can't even get them to turn aside, you see, you see, right? You see this tension? See, here's the interesting thing about Jesus. Jesus never wanted you to do life on empty. He didn't. In fact, listen to what he says later on in John. He said, I have said these things to you. Why? So that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What does it mean to be full of joy? There's no room for no more joy, right? Sometimes people think, and it's so interesting, so many folks, and, and then maybe this is you. I, I, this has been true of me in, in, in life as well. So many of us live life right on the verge of empty, just running on fumes constantly. And Jesus says, you don't have to do life that way. I've met some Christians who think that this is what God wants from them, that they're supposed to be, and, and that could not be further from the truth. Life might be really hard, and at times it is, but the whole idea that Jesus says is that you do not have to do life without joy. Your life will never be easy. The assignment might not be easy. Remember Paul? He's in prison. What's he doing? He's singing hymns. The life that Paul lived was not easy. The yoke was easy. His tank is so full he's singing because it was really true. Jesus says, my joy will be in you and your joy will be full and nothing can take it away from you. So as we wrap up this second stage, let me just ask you, how are you doing on this one? How's your joy tank today? Are, are, are you dangerously close to the extra credit on the needle? What practices, what habits might you need to engage to experience the replenishing of sustaining grace?
First movement is acceptance. Second movement is sustenance. Two more, two more. We're almost there. Number three is this. The third stage of the grace cycle is the movement of significance. Now, significance is where we can find our identity and our value and worth in Christ. This is the stage where we become aware of who we are, who we've been created to be in Christ. Jesus was very, very clear about his significance, about his identity. In fact, he would talk about this all the time. We see this in the Gospel of John. Jesus had a habit of making these I am statements, these significant statements, right? He would say things like, I I, I am the way, I am the bread of life, I am the vine, I am the good shepherd. Jesus knew who he was. He knew his significance. How would you complete an I am statement today? Jesus knew his significance. How would you finish that statement? Now, I need to say a quick aside here to the middle schoolers and high schoolers in the room, because I I just want to be honest for a minute. Um, Middle school was a really rough season of life for me. I don't know how your middle school years were, but man, middle school was tough. And I remember in middle school, really, well, the only word I have for is that I felt insignificant, right? I felt like I didn't matter. In fact, I became convinced that if I could just be like someone else, if I had someone else's gifts, someone else's talents, someone else's ability, someone else's personality, then maybe, just maybe, I would matter to someone. I remember still to this day, the first time, right after I'd become a Christian, the first time I heard the words of Paul when he says this, and it was as if God was speaking directly to me. Paul says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Oh, Paul, you, when you say we, you mean somebody, you don't mean Aaron, right? You mean everybody else, all, the, all, the, all y'all out there, but not Aaron, right? No, no. Aaron, you were created in Christ Jesus. You are God's handiwork. I just want you to think for a minute what difference that might make in your life if you could hear those words spoken to you? Not just, not just you generic, but you. You. You, Teresa. You are God's handiwork. You, Adam. You are God's handiwork. When God made Adam Dutka, he, he broke the mold. There are no other Adam Dutkas. You are one of a kind. God made you. He made you just the way the the song. He knit you in your mother's. There's no one else like you. And what difference might that make in your life if you could really believe, you could really hold on to that truth. You are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do the good works he prepared in advance for you to do. Which brings us to our fourth and final movement in the cycle of grace, which is achievement. God's got some stuff for you to do in this world. Not so you can earn his love, not so you can earn his approval, but because he's created you to do good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. It's in this movement in the cycle where we we begin to experience God's grace, not just flowing into us, but flowing out of us and through us into the lives of other people. And it's here that we see the final purpose of God's grace in our lives. 
that his grace might flow through us, might even overflow from us into the lives of others. God's got some good work for you to do in this world, a difference he wants you to make, a role he wants you to play. God's got some stuff that only you can accomplish. And this, too, is a part of his grace. You know, one of the greatest expressions of, uh, excuse me, experiences of joy that I've ever experienced has come when I've discovered God's grace working through me into the life of another person. That God's grace does not end with us. You see, Christians are not meant to be sponges where we simply soak up God's grace. We're, we're meant to take that sponge and squeeze it out into the life of others so that we can then go and replenish it, sustaining grace again, fill up, so we can go out and squeeze it out again and experience that grace flowing through us into the lives of others. That's part of the good work that he's put you here to do. For we are God's handiwork, created anew in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance. You want to talk about purpose? You want to talk about meaning in life? You want to talk about life abundant? When you experience God's grace flowing through you into the lives of others, my friend, there is no greater joy on this earth. So what do we do with this cycle of grace? Well, the big idea I hope you're catching this morning is that a life of joy flows from a life that is lived in the cycle of grace. One that be begins by knowing that I'm accepted, that is regularly refueled by his sustaining grace, and one where our achievements and our significance are not the source of our worth. They are simply icing on the cake of grace, outward expressions of what God has done in us and through us. Now that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Like, hey, Aaron, I'll take, I'll take that. Can I get a slice of that with some a la mode on it? Like, can I just take that home today? Is that how that works? I wish it was because, you see, there's a little bit of a problem for us. In, in our culture, uh, in, in our society, we, we tend to get this thing backwards. We start at the end. We start by trying to achieve impressive accomplishments so that we can feel like we've acquired significance, so that we will somehow be able to be sustained through all of our challenges and demands in life. The goal of all of that, that, that one day I might somehow miraculously, I don't know how, maybe, just maybe, I might finally be acceptable to somebody. But my friend, that is not the cycle of grace. It is the cycle of works, and it always leads to death, and it will always, always, always steal your joy. It will rob you of joy every time. The secret to joy. The secret to a joy buck that is overflowing in the joy of the Lord is learning to live in the pattern of grace that Jesus has shown us. So this morning, I want you to ask yourself, what pattern are you basing your joy on? Is it the cycle of grace? Or is it some other cycle that's going to leave you joyless and empty? I wanted to end today by just uh, giving you an opportunity to share a little bit of your joy with someone else. Uh, you might not know this, but uh, the, I want to share with you this morning the ancient Celtic story of the green Christmas chair. Okay, I made that up, but I, it sounds better, doesn't it? I want to share with you a little bit of the story of the green chair and what it has to do with joy. It was about 20 years ago when a young Pastor Mike Moses moved to Huntersville. Some of y'all will know Mike. Uh, 
to plant a church called Lake Forest Church. And Mike was gung-ho. Man, he had a vision. He had a dream. He had passion. He just had forgotten to budget money for chairs. And so Mike showed up one day to Grace Covenant Church where uh, another pastor there, Farrell, had uh, invited him to come so that Farrell could pray for him. And after Farrell prayed, uh, he said, hey, Mike, is there anything I can do for you? Is there any way we can support the work of this Lake Forest Church? And Mike said, you know, funny you should ask. <laughs> I forgot to budget money for chairs. They had, they had the building already reserved. They were going to be a set-up church just like us here, but they had no chairs. And so Farrell uh, called in his secretary, and that day, out of their local missions budget, they wrote a check which purchased every last chair that you all are sitting in today. And so for the last 20 years, because we're hand-me-downs, we got hundreds of hand-me-downs, right? The last 20 years, the last five years here at Westlake, these chairs every Sunday have been sat in by people who are just desperate for grace, desperate to know this God that loves them and accepts them just as they are. And maybe that's you. Maybe your life has been touched in one way or another, sitting in one of these green chairs. Or maybe this is your first time. What might God do in your life the next time you sit in that green chair. The truth is, in a community like this, anything is possible when the God who is the most joyful being in all the cosmos is present and graciously wanting to make contact with you and me. So I want to give you a challenge this Christmas. We have these invitations. The ushers can go ahead and come. These are invitations to our Christmas Eve service, and there are three of them paperclipped together. And I want each household, each family, to take home one of these sets of three. And you know, this is not a guilt thing. You don't need to feel bad about this. This is a chance for you to let joy flow through you into the life of the others. You guys can go ahead and pass those around. I want every household to take one set. But would you this week consider praying about who you might invite to join us for Christmas Eve? Who in your sphere, in your world, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your office, might just need a little more joy of the Lord this Christmas. Parents, families, you can talk about this with the kids on the drive home today. Who, who, who might we extend this invitation to? Or maybe you want to pray this week and think, God, who are these three that might need a touch from you this Christmas? What might God do bringing joy to those who long for him this year? Well, I want to close by praying for us. I'm going to pray that God today would fill your joy bucket Anew. Would you bow your heads and let's pray together?